Tonight I'd like to speak about various ways to awaken. And in particular, I want to talk about five ways to become an arhant. Now, an arhant is a fully enlightened one. Uh, The term means worthy, worthy of veneration, worthy of respect, worthy of offerings. And it refers to somebody who has completed the path, who not only has some temporary insight (laughs) or deep um, understanding about themselves and the world, but really has put an end to all greed, hate, and delusion. So it's um, perhaps a rather advanced topic. And some people might think, that doesn't relate very much to where I'm at today. But please indulge me, because I actually have a fairly simple but important point that I want to make. And perhaps some of you are curious, how do people awaken fully, become arhants? Do you ever wonder what they were doing when it happened? Or do you assume that they were always deep in meditation? And if so, perceiving What objects doing what practices? In the Nguttara Nikaya Book of the Fives, there's a discourse that describes five bases of liberation. And it says that someone may be liberated based upon listening to somebody teach the Dhamma. Or by teaching the Dhamma oneself or by reciting the Dhamma in detail as one has learned it, or by pondering, examining, and investigating the Dhamma, or by sustaining penetrative wisdom with the object of concentration. It's really only this last, this fifth one that refers to the deep meditative experience. But any of these five are said to make the mind conducive to liberation and final liberation at that. Each of these activities creates rather profound conditions where the mind is gladdened, joyful, calm, tranquil, happy, content, concentrated, diligent, resolute, and is perceiving experience with wisdom. And it's these conditions that can support awakening. What interested me in this discourse was that four of the five activities are explicitly related to hearing, teaching, reciting, or reflecting on the teachings. And it was really only one that described a kind of classic meditative experience. And when we look at the Buddhist teachings, what we see is a path of knowledge of wisdom, of understanding, and the unfolding of our vipassana, the unfolding of our insight meditation, is an unfolding of insight knowledge. We develop understanding in this practice. And what is that penetrative understanding but a full understanding of suffering, its causes, and its end? The Buddhist teachings emphasize throughout the discourses knowledge, understanding, fully knowing, clearly comprehending, 
Meditation, though, creates very important conditions that make the body and the mind settled, present, ripe, ready to be touched by the Dhamma, ready to be affected by hearing the teachings of truth. Perhaps an agricultural example is to liken meditation to preparing the ground by plowing so that the teachings can then land on well-prepared soil. I interpret these five bases of liberation primarily as an encouragement to value and to integrate both the wisdom components and clear understanding, right view that comes through study, through reflection, through hearing the Dhamma, and also the deep tranquility, calmness, and uh, stable mental container, mental field that develops through meditation. And I consider how even the factors that we might associate with meditation, such as mindfulness, tranquility, and wisdom, they can develop while we study, if we have the right attitude towards um, knowledge, and if we engage in our study as a practice, as a, with a contemplative attitude. How do you balance or integrate or combine your study with your meditation practice? Does your study imply more... Does it, is it more like your study inspires your meditation practice or does your meditation practice inform your understanding of the texts, of the teachings, of what the path is about? Teachings describe the path. They articulate the purpose, the aim. They provide direction, they describe techniques, they give us lots of strategies and suggestions for overcoming obstacles on the path. When we read the discourses, we can feel as though we are part of a community of beings who have been working with these practices for thousands of years. You know, they even have names that are remembered from thousands of years ago of so-and-so asked the Buddha this question and so-and-so was practicing in this way and so-and-so was having a really hard time struggling with this hindrance. Ooh, that's actually the same hindrance I had today. We have friends on the path. Sometimes the discourses offer us um, a new perspective, something to explore, We read something, and we don't actually know what that is. That's inspiring. To read something and not know what they're talking about, those are some of the juiciest things to contemplate. Because if we read something and already know it, you know, why bother to contemplate it? But when you hear something in the teachings, and there's some inkling that this is important, but you don't know why then you can work with it, you can uh, contemplate it, you can investigate it. And so sometimes reading the discourses or studying the Dharma gives us a chance to find a new way of seeing something outside our own conditioned habitual patterns, fresh ways of approaching our own experience.
Dharma teachings can challenge us. But to accept the challenge, we must let ourselves be affected by the teachings. And when we have some understanding, some insight, when we read something or when we experience something in our meditation that we know to be profound and true, then our challenge is to live and act from that wisdom. Whatever insights we have experienced and realized in the meditation, the challenge comes to live from that place, to bring that into our activities and our actions. Some people like to just sit and emphasize the calm, present experience of this state. And no doubt many of you give a great deal of preference to meditation. The forest refuge tends to attract those of us that really appreciate and love the meditative component of the path. And many of us expect that sitting will naturally lead to liberation, will almost inevitably lead to liberation. But I don't think it does. Hens can sit on their eggs a lot longer than any of us can sit in a still meditative posture. For meditation to be effective, for our mindfulness to be freeing and to actually lead to insight, for our concentration to be profound and go beyond just a tranquil, blissful state. We have to understand the path, the perspective. And so the practice and the teachings really intertwine to make this path a liberating path. I consider mindfulness to be a necessary element, but not a sufficient element. We need more than just mindfulness. The context that we create at this retreat center is important. We come together with wholesome intentions, with the knowledge of the path that includes more than just sitting. We practice virtue. We keep the precepts. We practice generosity and wisdom, as well as samadhi. We explore the Dhamma teachings through reflections, through evening talks like this one, and in the various ways that you support your own practice through study and reflection. And these remind ourselves of the potential that we have to put an end to greed and hatred and ignorance. It is possible. If we only sit without the liberating context of the Buddha's teachings, I'd be concerned that we would only learn to quiet the mind, to experience sort of equanimity and peace with what's happening, but not necessarily the liberating experience of release. The Buddha's path is a path of awakening. The Pali Canon contains thousands of pages of brilliant, inspiring discourses. It's as close as we can come to receive the direct teachings from the Buddha. And we are living in a remarkably privileged time when we have excellent translations of the discourses of the Buddha that are easily available 
It's a virtual renaissance of dynamic scholarship that we find pouring out, not just by academics, but by scholar practitioners who understand the aim of the teachings and practice it as well as do the scholarly work. One of the things I enjoy teaching very much is um, sutta study courses. And I've been doing this for ever since I started teaching. I do three courses a month, and one of them is an online course. So I engage with many people reading the discourses of the Buddha. And I don't like to be picky and choosy. We just pick one book and we read through it. So, you know, we read the Middle Link Discourses. It took us three years. We read the um, Numerical Discourses. It took us four years. We read the Connected Discourses. It took us three years. Um, We're now in this, um, we just read one year of a two-year program to uh, read the Long Discourses of the Buddha. And so we read the whole thing, even the silly discourses, or even the ones that we think are kind of, um, really? Why is that remembered for thousands of years? Like the one where he teaches them how, suggests that they brush their teeth. But actually, oral hygiene is important. (laughs) And it's very important, especially if you live in community. You know, you don't want all your monastic friends to have bad breath and then to have toothaches. So there's actually a little discourse. Fortunately, it's a short one that basically says they should brush their teeth. This was before Crest and Colgate and Tom's toothpaste was out. So they had, they had like a little paste and they chewed a little neem thing and made a little brush, you know, it's, but it worked. Now, that wasn't the most profound teaching that we find in the discourses of the Buddha, but we find a wide range of ways that the Buddha engaged with people, with people, and I love that. What I wish I could give you is an example of somebody who attends my online sutta study class every month and was liberated by hearing the teachings and is now an arhant, but... We're all still on the path, but we are on the path, and that's what really matters. But when we read the discourses, we find many examples of monastics whose awakening occurred, perhaps while studying the teachings, while pondering them, perhaps while hearing a discourse from the Buddha, or perhaps while meditating. And so I want to look a little bit more detail at each of these five modes. The first is the experience of awakening while listening to someone teach the Dhamma. Ah, it could happen right now. Possible. There are so many uh, times when, you know, the Buddha gave some teaching, like everything that's of a nature to arise is of a nature to pass away, and boom, they got it. They just got it. We can read so many exclamations of insight, joy, awakening, declarations of knowledge that are recorded in the Pali Canon that appear to have occurred when somebody listened to a talk. And often it was when the Buddha was teaching. Sometimes whole groups of people were awakened. 
some just to the first level, some to the second, some to the third, and some arhants. Now, the Buddha gave rather powerful teachings, no doubt, and people listened very intently with full attention, with strong faith. Some discourses say things like, and those 500 bhikkhus abandoned the taints that defile the mind and through not clinging were liberated. That's pretty cool to give a talk and have 500 bhikkhus abandon all the taints and be liberated through non-clinging. In ancient India, they weren't so precise about numbers. 500 didn't actually mean one more than 499. Um, I think we can interpret 500 to mean a whole lot of people got it, not necessarily exactly 500. But there are many examples in the suttas. Even the Buddha's own son, Rahula, attained arhanship while he was receiving a teaching on impermanence, on unsatisfactoriness, and on the not-self characteristics of the sense basis and the aggregates. You've probably all heard teachings on these subjects, too. The exhortation to Rahula says, This is what the Blessed One said, and elated, the Venerable Rahula delighted in the Blessed One's statement, and while this discourse was being spoken, the Venerable Rahula's mind was liberated from the taints by non-clinging. There's an event um, in Sariputta's um, Dhamma career that's recorded in the um, Diganaka Sutta in the Middle Link Discourses. And it describes a situa- the situation in which Venerable Sariputta attained arhanship. And it was while he was overhearing the Buddha give teachings to his cousin, Diganaka. And the thrust of the teachings was to instruct Diganaka to not cling to any view, to discard all previously held views, and to simply not pick up another one. Let go of what you're attached to and don't form another attachment. In that discourse, it says to side with none and dispute with none. Let go of the views. Let go of the judgments. Let go of the opinions. Sariputta was listening to this teaching while he was standing behind the Buddha, fanning him because it was a very hot summer day. And it says, Now on that occasion, the venerable Sariputta was standing behind the Blessed One fanning him. Then he thought, the Blessed One indeed speaks of the abandoning of these things through direct knowledge. The The sublime one indeed speaks of the relinquishing of these things through direct knowledge. As the venerable Sariputta considered this through not clinging, his mind was liberated from the taints. The conditions were ripe. It was a marvelous moment where Venerable Sariputta could hear the teachings and combined with the qualities of his own mind and heart, his deep faith, his calmness, his understanding, and perhaps the good karma of the selfless service of fanning the Buddha. You know, actually, it's hard to fan somebody else on a hot day make that extra effort standing in the, in the heat yourself. But it all combined for that amazing and transformative moment of awakening. 
The second mode is to be liberated while teaching the Dhamma. And for this category, I want to share a two-for-one discourse where both the speaker and the listeners were simultaneously enlightened while the teaching was being given. And it's the story of Venerable Kaimaka, who was a very diligent monk. And he had already attained to the third stage of awakening, apparently through many years of diligent practice. But he was not yet free of the conceit, I am. And when this discourse took place, he was quite old and quite sick. And the community of elder monks, hearing that he was ill, sent a messenger to ask about his health. How are you doing? How are you feeling? How is your mind holding up? And um, they misinterpreted his reply to to think that that Kaimaka declared our hunt-ship declared freedom in his mind. And so uh, he, the, the messenger was throughout the discourse kind of like going back and forth between Venerable Kemaka and these group of elder monks, Venerable Kemaka and these group of elder monks trying to clarify. So they were having this weird conversation that was passed back and forth by the, um, by the messenger, um, essentially, which was basically that... Um, that Venerable Kemaka was saying that he was not attached to the five aggregates, the experience of body and mind as self, but nevertheless, the sense I am would still arise. So this just basically positions him at the third stage of awakening. But after this messenger was running back and forth, unable to clarify this subtle distinction, um, Kemaka got fed up with this, and even though he was sick and even though he was old, he took his cane and he hobbled on over to go speak with the elders himself to explain the processes of conceit and identity and attachment. And it says, The venerable Kemaka has explained, taught, proclaimed, established, disclosed, analyzed, and elucidated the Blessed One's teachings into detail. Elated, the elder bhikkhus delighted in the venerable Kemaka's statement. And while this discourse was being spoken, the minds of 60 elder bhikkhus and the venerable Kemaka were liberated from the taints by not clinging. It's pretty nice, isn't it? He talked himself right into awakening, even while he was sick. Now, the third mode is to be liberated by reciting the Dhamma in detail as we have learned it. And I think this may be a skill that is less common these days. Perhaps we've missed out on some of the benefits of recitation, of memorizing, and the reflection and concentration that comes through that practice. Recitation creates very conducive conditions for awakening because it's an activity that heightens and matures the faculty of mindfulness. We have to be concentrated and attentive and mindful to recite the teachings. And as we're reciting them, we can also be contemplating their meaning. It's not impossible to do recitation. I have a number of students in my um, Uh, in my local sutta study groups that each month choose to memorize, actually memorize a discourse. 
from beginning to end, one of them every month. Others will choose a passage, a paragraph, a verse. And it's really beautiful, it's really powerful to choose some discourse or some paragraph or even some phrase or sentence that we find meaningful and to take the time to recite it regularly enough that we actually memorize it. And then each time we recite it, to let the meaning touch us, to contemplate the meaning. In the Samyutta Nikaya, in one discourse, a bhikkhu is encouraged to learn a teaching well from an accomplished master and then dwell, withdrawn, recollecting it and thinking it over in order to mature the seven factors of awakening beginning with mindfulness. It says, dwelling thus withdrawn, one recollects that dhamma and thinks it over. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is aroused in that bhikkhu. On that occasion, the bhikkhu develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness comes to fulfillment by development in the bhikkhu. Once we have mindfulness present and we have the understanding of the teachings, we can sort of figure out how to practice from there. As you may be aware, at the time of the Buddha, the Dhamma teachings were not written down. It was maybe about 300 years or so after the Buddha's life before anything was really written down. There was a kind of written script at the time, but it wasn't customary to apply writing, or more literally scratching, uh, to spiritual concerns. When the Buddha or his disciples gave a teaching, the people listened. And they listened with full attention. They were not multitasking and listening on electronic devices while working out on a treadmill or while driving to work in the morning. They gave their full attention to the teachings. They were so attentive that afterwards they would be able to share what they learned with other monastics or interested students that they met as they traveled from place to place. It's quite a difference from, today, from, from the experience that we have today. I'd like to ask how many of you can remember what the topic of my talk was last week. <laughs> Maybe in retreat you can remember. But at, when, I, when I, I have tried that at my meditation group, and it's really, it's a, it's a minority of people who come, every, even if they come every week and we're there, could they remember what the topic was the previous week? And in daily life, we're inundated with so many activities and so many engagements that I think are, it's hard to remember things. It's hard to, even if we feel present, even if we feel moved by something, to actually retain it in memory is a particular skill, and it does require concentration. There are many instances in the suttas that describe gatherings of monastics in which one would ask another if they had had the opportunity in their wandering to hear a teaching by the Blessed One. And if somebody said yes, they would be asked, please recite it to us. 
and then they would recite it, and then they would elaborate the meaning in greater detail, and they would discuss it. It was so normal at the time for, for them to, to, to cherish the teachings, to bring it to memory, to recite what they had learned, to share it in community, and then to discuss it with each other. Now, some were very adept reciters and took this role very seriously to preserve the teachings of the Buddha. And they took on the practice, these reciters, of memorizing large collections of these teachings in the, the um, hundreds and thousands of years since the Buddha's time. This is what preserved the oral tradition, which allowed it to be passed from generation to generation until they were finally written down around the first century or so um, B.C. We have so many teachings available now, but it's only been, what, about maybe 130 years since the teachings have been translated into English, which is not a very long time in the scheme of things. In the Vana Samyutta, there's a discourse titled Reciting. And it's a story of a certain bhikkhu who had been excessively engrossed in recitation, but then it was discovered that he had stopped reciting. And a deva came down and asked him, why do you not recite Dhamma stanzas anymore? And the bhikkhu replied, In the past, I was fond of Dhamma stanzas, so long as I had not achieved dispassion. But from the time I achieved dispassion, I dwelt in what the good men call the laying down by final knowledge of whatever is seen, heard, or sensed. And in the footnote, it says that um, this guy attained final knowledge, arhantship, and thought, "Ah, I've attained the goal for the sake of which I did the recitation, so why continue to recite? It did its work. Good. And then it says that he passed his time in the bliss of the fruition attainment. The fourth um, mode is to be liberated while pondering, examining, and investigating the Dhamma. And this is the contemplation of what it is we heard or what it is we've learned. We need to contemplate them in order to be able to extract the significance and the meaning that we can then apply in our lives. We need to reflect on the teachings so that we just don't adopt them or quote them mindlessly, but we discern what is true and what is not true. And we try to discern how we can most skillfully engage in the world from the perspective of what we know to be true through having understood the experience of this psychophysical process and the con- in the context of causes of suffering and end of suffering. Contemplation is an integral feature of a mindful encounter. It's not just noting seeing and hearing and thinking and sensing all day. We have to contemplate the experience 
of what is being known in a moment of seeing, in a moment of hearing, in a moment of sensation, in a moment of cognition. We contemplate and examine our encounter with life, with the fields of the senses, with the mind. We investigate how experience forms and how we're responding to our thoughts and our feelings through our tendencies and our patterns. We see, because we contemplate, how suffering is produced and how suffering can cease. Meditation is not merely a means to calm the mind, to dwell in peaceful, concentrated states. It includes a dynamic of investigation, and even meditative investigation is often called contemplating. We find this reference to contemplating the impermanence of things, contemplating the dukkha, contemplating not-self. So that the knowledge of it, the thoughtful recognition of the, of the experience of the contemplation merges with and meets the present experience of something changing. In the Anguttara Nikaya, there's a discourse where Venerable Mahamogalana is kind of t- tired and slothful and dozing off. And the Buddha comes to give him a teaching on how to dispel his drowsiness and offers several suggestions, the final one being, just go take a nap. And usually this is a popular discourse because, you know, it's a popular hindrance. Who, who has not experienced sloth and torpor? And it's kind of nice that there's a practical ending to the teaching as well, that when you try it, have tried everything else, just go take a little nap, you know, be practical about this. But the discourse continues, and it says, after the, after the little nap thing, so after sort of the, the hindrances are settled and this issue of sloth and torpor is resolved, um, Mahamogalana asked the Blessed One, briefly, Bhante, I love this when they ask him, please be brief. <laughs> Makes me think sometimes he wasn't. <laughs> Briefly, Bhante. Um, how is a bhikkhu liberated in the extinction of craving, best among devas and humans, one who has reached the ultimate conclusion, one ultimate security from bondage, lived the ultimate spiritual life, and gained the ultimate consummation? Here, Mogalana, a bhikkhu has heard. Nothing is worth holding to. When a bhikkhu has heard nothing is worth holding to, he directly knows all things. Having directly known all things, he fully understands all things. Having fully understood all things, whatever feeling he feels, whether pleasant, painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, he dwells contemplating impermanence in those feelings, contemplating fading away in those feelings, contemplating cessation in those feelings, contemplating relinquishment in those feelings. As he dwells contemplating impermanence, fading away, cessation, relinquishment in those feelings, he does not cling to anything in the world. Not clinging, he is not agitated. Being unagitated, he personally attains Nibbana. So here we see a progression from hearing the teaching to contemplating it within the context of the impermanence of our experience. 
This contemplation transforms the way one relates to experience so that one can relate to experience not clinging to anything in the world. This describes the state of the arhant. Contemplation and investigation are important. Investigation is one of the seven factors of awakening. It's one of the valuable skills that we must develop in our practice. We learn to bring the teachings from what we learned from an outside source, a teacher, a talk, a reading. And we bring the lesson of that to bear on our internal experience of living, the way we perceive things, the way we encounter the sense stores, so that a liberating transformation can occur. Now the fifth is to be liberated while sustaining penetrating wisdom with the object of concentration. So this is the avenue that we generally consider to be meditation. Sitting meditation, walking meditation, focused meditation. It can include standing, reclining, walking, but there's a a definite inclination to the meditating in seclusion here. Perhaps the ultimate example of one who was awakened by meditating is the Buddha himself. He was sitting under the Bodhi tree with a firm resolve to not budge until he had realized full awakening. In the Anguttara Nikaya, it says, Two things, O monks, I came to know well, not to be content with good states of mind so far achieved, and to be unremitting in the struggle for the goal. Unremittingly indeed did I struggle and I resolved. Let only my skin, sinews, and bones remain. Let the flesh and blood in my body dry up. Yet there shall be no ceasing of energy till I have attained whatever can be won by strength, energy, and effort. He sat down with determination. And then he says, Through diligence have I won enlightenment. Through diligence have I won the unsurpassed security from bondage. And then it's repeated, starting out, You too, O monks, can struggle unremittingly and resolve. So he urges his disciples to practice intently. There are so many examples in the discourses of a disciple who was awakened while dwelling alone diligent, ardent, and resolute, dedicated to meditation in seclusion. A good example is the Venerable Anuruddha. And there's a discourse in the Anguttara Nikaya that describes a conversation he had with Venerable Sariputta. Now, Venerable Anuruddha described that he had developed the divine eye, that he's mindful, energetic, calm, and tranquil. You know, so he gave his little interview report to his friend, Venerable Sariputta. Yeah, all these good things happen today. You know, my practice is going well. And then there's the but. But he's still not yet free. Anuruddha said, 
Here, friend Sariputta, with the divine eye which is purified and surpasses the human, I survey a thousand world system. Energy is aroused in me without slackening. My mindfulness is established without confusion. My body is tranquil without disturbance. My mind is concentrated and one-pointed. Yet my mind is still not liberated from the taints through not clinging. And then Venerable Sariputta encouraged um, Anuruddha to abandon the conceit, abandon the restlessness, abandon the remorse that were bound up with his own perception of his own meditative attainments. And then it says, sometime later, the Venerable Anuruddha abandoned those three qualities, conceit, restlessness, and remorse in relationship to his own practice. He stopped attending to them. Instead, he directed his mind to the deathless element. Then, dwelling alone, withdrawn, heedful, ardent, and resolute in no long time, the Venerable Anuruddha realized for himself with direct knowledge in this very life that unsurpassed consummation of the spiritual life for the sake of which clansmen rightly go forth from the household life into homelessness. And having entered upon it, he dwelled in it. He directly knew, destroyed his birth. The spiritual life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. And the venerable Anuruddha became one of the Arhants. Another well-known example of diligent meditation is a venerable Sona. And again, this is a discourse that's well-known and often quoted because this is the discourse where the Buddha appeared before Venerable Sona and gave him the teachings on balancing his effort like somebody would balance the effort with, um, a, like playing a stringed instrument. You too, strings are too tight or too lax. It doesn't sound good. Then, sometime later, the Venerable Sona resolved on the balance of energy, achieved evenness and balance in the spiritual faculties, and took up the object of meditation there. Then dwelling alone, withdrawn, heedful, ardent, and resolute, in no long time the Venerable Sona realized for himself with direct knowledge in this very life that unsurpassed consummation of the spiritual life, blah, 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 blah. Done what was had to be done. And the Venerable Sona became one of the Arhants. Historically, and for some meditators today, there can be a kind of tension between practice and study. Apparently, at the time of the Buddha, the Vedic tradition in ancient India put extreme emphasis on recitation and study of scripture. And this overly learned approach might even have been part of the contributing factor to the thriving ascetic movements that were so popular at, 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 in that time, including early Buddhism. The ascetics who gathered in the parks were searching for personal realization, not just academic study. They were developing various methods in their earnest search for a practical and radical transformation not just the repetition of what was already known. Certain seekers were familiar, though, with both study and the methods of recitation and meditative approaches. And the Buddha incorporated and balanced reflection, learning, 
and meditative approaches in his teaching strategies. In the Anguttaranakaya, a certain bhikkhu asked the, once asked the Buddha, in what way is a bhikkhu one who dwells in the Dhamma? And the Buddha's reply goes through various approaches, most of them study approaches. He learns much, he teaches, recites, ponders. And then basically he says, and these are not good enough if one is devoid of meditation. For example, it says, Again, a bhikkhu teaches the Dhamma to others in detail as he has heard it and learned it. He passes the day communicating that Dhamma, but neglects seclusion and does not devote himself to internal serenity of mind. This is called a bhikkhu who is absorbed in communication, not one who dwells in the Dhamma. And then similarly, for one who learns the Dhamma, for one who teaches the Dhamma, for one who recites the Dhamma, for one who he ponders, examines, and investigates the Dhamma. What, he, what the Buddha encourages not, is not the development of the study component and the recitation, but a combined approach. The fifth approach in this discourse is an encouragement that combines learning and meditation. It says, but that one, it, it says he does these other things, but that one does not pass the day solely in learning the Dhamma. He does not neglect seclusion, but devotes himself to internal serenity of mind. It is in this way that a bhikkhu is called one who dwells in the Dhamma. So final knowledge may occur in any of these activities, learning, teaching, reciting, reflecting, and meditating. But the Dhamma path is a path that includes them all. There's a role for study and a role for practice. And these can be integrated in this path of serenity and insight. You might at different times emphasize a little bit more of the reflection or a little bit more of the deep meditation. But I hope that you'll understand that this path can include both. We can have a balanced approach. We can augment our study and make it relevant with the support of our meditation. And our meditation can sometimes be inspired and guided and informed through periodic study. So thank you for your attention this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.